Let us pray. Our mercy, eternal and everlasting Father, we are thankful this morning for your grace and mercy, for the privilege that you have afforded us to assemble together to worship you because of who you are and what you do for us. What a great God, what a majestic God, what a loving and caring God. We thank you for the blessings that you have bestowed upon each and every one this past week. We know you've been faithful in ways that we can never even fathom or even conceive. So we have gathered this morning in obedience to instruction that we should do so. And we are aware that the human mind is incapable of understanding anything that is spiritual apart from the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So it is a request now that God the Holy Spirit, the perfect communicator, will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us this morning. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. We are still in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3 in the NIV 1984 edition reads as follows. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, they have not love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, they have not love. I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, they have not love. I gain nothing. Now the message of this 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians that we have been considering is that a life characterized by love is more important in the church of Christ than temporary exercise of spiritual gifts. Now this message we stated will, will be expounded through three assertions of the apostle that convey the importance of love. The first assertion derived from uh, the, uh, this, this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 1 to 3 is that exercise of the gift of speaking in tongues without a life characterized by love is meaningless in that it gives a confusing message. The second assertion is that the exercise of spiritual gifts of prophecy and faith without a, a life characterized by love renders the believer ineffective ineffective. Now this assertion is based on two conditional statements of the apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 2. Again it says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge and if I have a faith they can move mountains. They have not love, I am nothing. So we have started to consider the second conditional Clause, and if I have faith that can move mountains, 
with a focus, of course, on the word faith. So we examined, towards the end of, of our study last week, the Greek word pistis, uh, translated faith, concluding that the word is used in our verse in the sense of a state of strong confidence in and reliance upon God that is a gift from him that may lead to the miraculous. That's strong confidence that we have. And so it is with, with further evidence though, of this meaning that we begin our study uh, this morning. Now the strong confidence in and reliance upon God that the apostle made is further qualified with the verbal phrase, look at that and say, can move mountains. That qualifies that confidence, that reliance upon God that can lead to that which is miraculous. So, say, can move mountains. Now, the word move is translated from a Greek word that has two general meanings. It means to remove, because that is to transfer from uh, one location to another, either of things or person. Thus, it is used in the parable of the shrewd manager being removed from his position as narrated in Luke chapter 16 verse 4. Luke 16 verse 4. Luke chapter 16 verse 4 reads, I know that I do so, I do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Now the clause, when I lose my job, is literally when I'm removed from the management. Now another meaning of the Greek word is to cause a complete change in someone's beliefs. Normally, in the unfavorable uh, sense of causing someone to turn away from a previous belief. That is, in this case, means to mislead. To mislead. Now, it is in this sense that the word is used by Demetrius of Ephesus to incite riot against Apostle Paul's preaching of the gospel message asserting that he was drawing away people from the worship of the goddess Artemis, according to Acts chapter 19, verse 26. Now, the, the assertion of this man should remind all of us how he, people can easily mislabel things and deceive people. And they will think you are wrong. Because they are wrong. <laughs> they are not coming from the truth. So this is what we see an example of it here. You say, and you see, and hear, how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus. Now you just think about it. He's accusing the apostle of leading people astray. When he is the one leading them to the truth. So this is why you can see. People can accuse you anything they want to. 
We live in a time people can say anything they want to. It doesn't matter. What matters is what is the truth. In other words, what does the scripture say about that? Not what an opinion anyone expresses. So anyway, it says, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man made gods are not gods at all. Again, you see, when people are in deception, they don't think clearly. Neither can they look at truth and accept it. That is the characteristic of being in deception. So how can this man say that man-made gods are not gods? I mean, if he was thinking, he said, well, now we're making the gods. How are they gods now? But he wasn't thinking. That's what happens when people are in deception. They don't think. No matter how the truth stares at their faith, they won't think. That's what we have here. In our passage, though, of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, the Greek word is used in the sense of to remove, that is, of course, to remove something concrete, as by lifting or taking off, really. Of course, the uh, verbal phrase of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2 that we're looking at, where it says, can move mountains, reminds us, though, of the concept conveyed by the Lord himself to his disciples in Matthew chapter 21, verse 21, regarding faith. Position of faith. Matthew chapter 21, verse 21. This is our Lord addressing the issue of faith on the part of the disciples. And this is what he's telling them is to all of us. This is what he says. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. Now, the Lord did not really mean that the disciples could literally move mountains. But that if they had faith, they would overcome great difficulties. Since moving mountains is an idiom for doing the impossible. So if you have faith, many things can happen. When people are doubting, you say, no, it's going to take place. And it will take place. If you don't doubt now that aside though, the apostle, having stated them, the two conditional clauses that we have considered, proceeds then to provide an additional statement that is necessary to complete the second assertion that the exercise of the spiritual gifts of prophecy and faith without a life characterized by love renders the believer ineffective. So the additional Statement is given in the verbal phrase of where we're studying, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2. Look at it, it says, But have not love. But have not love. Now we have uh, previously expanded on what this verbal phrase, have not love, means in a more practical way, beside the implied fact of not being under the control of the Holy Spirit. That is what we say is when he said have not love, that's implied. 
That means you're not controlled by the Holy Spirit. But we, we talked about this in a little more practical ways. For example, we said that the exercising of one's spiritual freedom in Christ regarding debatable matters in such a way that will cause spiritual problems to a weak believer, a believer uh, who does not see uh, it no much of the scripture is an uh, action that implies that one who takes that action does not have love. Now to fail to be understanding towards the failures of fellow believers or to fail to be patient with each other is an act that means that one who does such a thing does not have love. Another thing that one could do that implies that the one who does that does not have love is if there is no genuine concern, interest in the affairs of others in a way as to be helpful. Still, another thing that uh, implies not having love is related, of course, to the previous, which is shutting one's eyes to the needs of others. Thus, if a believer fails in the manner we have described them, then what the apostle states as the conclusion of the conditional clause then concerning the spiritual gifts of prophecy and, and faith will not be true of the person if the person fails in those areas. Now the conclusion of the apostle is that he is ineffective if he failed to love despite exercising the gifts of prophecy and faith. Now this conclusion is given in the sentence of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 2 that we're starting with. Say, I am nothing. I am nothing. Now, that word is so simple, but I'm going to expand it and look at it. In, and so you see the range of meanings of that, the Greek word translated nothing. Now the word is translated from a Greek word that as an adjective means no, no. As it is used in uh, Peter's argument, as the church considered the relationship of Gentile believers to the ceremonial aspect of the Mosaic law during that church council, as recorded in Acts chapter 15, verse 9. Acts chapter 15, verse 9. Acts chapter 15, verse 9 reads, He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now, here, the, the word translated nothing, here it's translated no. I say now, though, the Greek word means anyone. As Apostle Paul used it to indicate he was not a burden to anyone in Corinth when he was in need, as stated in Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. Second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 9. 
erase. And when I was with you, I needed something. I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way. And will continue to do so. So here the word is, the Greek word is translated anyone. The same Greek word translated nothing. Now the word may mean nothing alright. As in the answer of the disciples to the question of the Lord Jesus Christ. If they lacked anything when he sent them out on a mission field. Without pause, without anything. And he asked them, did you lack anything? And this is how they responded as recorded in Luke chapter 22 verse 35. Luke chapter 22 verse 35. It is, then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without thoughts, Bag or sandals? Do you like anything? Do you like anything? Nothing. That's our Greek word here again. Translate nothing. They answered. Now the meaning nothing though has various nuances depending on the context. Now, as you can see, the word nothing that doesn't really mean much until you look at the nuance or the context. For example, the word even if it may be translated nothing, may mean invalid. Invalid. As it is used in the law statement about the inconsistency of Jewish religious leaders taking, uh, regarding taking of an oath, as recorded in Matthew chapter 23, verse 18. Yeah, he's dealing with inconsistency. And of course, you know, really, uh, the reason we all get to be inconsistent is failure to adhere to truth. Because if you continuously adhere to truth, you cannot be inconsistent. It's when we're all inconsistent, because we're not adhering to truth. So here, the Lord says to them, You also say, now that's the inconsistency now, in one minute, you see if you swore by this, then it's valid. If you swear by this, it's not valid. But because they've been inconsistent, they're not going into the truth. So, the Lord say, you also say, you also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, not always swear by the altar, it means nothing. But if you swear on the gift on it, then you say, he is bound by his oath. Now, there's some inconsistency. The altar is dedicated to God. The gift is dedicated to God. So, there's some inconsistency. Anyway, the main concern here, though, is the word nothing. Because it says, if anyone swears by the gift uh, on it, he is bound by his faith. But then, look at if he says, if you swear by the altar, it means nothing. 
Now what does it really mean that it means nothing? Now the meaning nothing here is really equivalent to saying it's invalid. Now that's even though it's roughly nothing. It simply means invalid because that sentence where it says he's bound by his oath implies then that the oath taken by the author is not binding. So that to say that such an oath is nothing implies that it is invalid as not to be binding. Now I know and I, I hope some of you have got to that point where you when you're talking with people, you're listening with with hearing what they're saying, words, because they have meanings. People, if you can't, if you are a person who can make your point, you have to come out with concise words to express what you want to say. And when we don't do that, we, you know, we fail to communicate really. So when the issue, people use words, you keep saying, what do you really mean? Now, so you, we have to understand that it is important that we continue to look at words and their meanings in the context. Anyway, the meaning nothing may also be understood to mean worthless or meaningless. Since our Greek word is used by Apostle Paul in what should be considered earth-shaking among the Jews in Corinth or elsewhere though when he described how unimportant or worthless circumcision is when dealing with the spiritual life of believers. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 19. Now we know from the scripture and also from extra biblical uh, writings that the Jews of the ancient world, they prided themselves on their circumcision. Because the, the mark, as I've explained to you in the past, the mark of being a Hebrew person, even to today, that is how these people do not research us to find out the lost tribe. That's one of the ways they've been finding them, is there are people who do circumcision on the eighth day, and no one can explain why and how. And their neighbors don't, but they are the only small group in whatever country they are. And that's how they identify them, part of the way they identify them. So, for a Jew, circumcision was a big issue, big thing. Now, bear that in mind, and listen to what Apostle Paul says, that's why you know why I say it was earth-shaking for him to say what we're about to write. Read. He says, circumcision is nothing. Really? A Jew say, what? He said, circumcision is nothing. And our circumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Now we're saying that when the apostle wrote them, circumcision is nothing and our circumcision is nothing. He meant that circumcision or lack of it is worthless or meaningless when it comes to the spiritual life of believers in Christ. That is worthless. Whether you circumcise, you don't circumcise, it doesn't mean anything. That's what he was saying. Anyway, in our passage of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 2, the Greek word is used with the sense of nothing, 
that is really uh, a quantity of no importance. That's that nothing. It's a quantity of no importance. So, if the apostle said that he is nothing, if he did not meet the conditions related to loving others, he meant that he is worthless or of no importance to the church of Christ and so means that he is ineffective as far as his impact is concerned. Consequently then, we made the second assertion of the apostle in the passage of our study, which is the exercise of spiritual gifts of prophecy and faith without a life characterized by love renders the believer ineffective. In other words, if you are in a, a group like ours, and you can't exercise love, what good are you to the group? That's what the, the point is here. Now, if you're a member of a body of Christ, and you can't exercise love towards each other, you're ineffective. You have really no value to the church. That's the issue. So if you do not exercise love, that means you can understand now that you're really meaningless, though you're part of a local body, but you are not effective. That's the issue here. Anyway, the, so that brings us to the third and the final assertion of the apostle in the passage that we're studying, which is that exercise of spiritual gifts of help. The exercise of the spiritual gift of help without a life characterized by love would not lead to eternal reward. Again, we're talking about if you have the gift of help and you exercise it and you, your life is not characterized by love, then that would not lead to eternal reward. Now, this assertion is derived from, uh, derived first from the uh, conditional clause of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3 that we are studying. Look at what it says. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, that's the first conditional clause. Now, on a surface reading, this conditional clause, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, does not seem to be concerned with the spiritual gift of help. As for the assertion we made, remember what I said is, if you exercise a spiritual gift of help without a life characterized by love, then that you, it will not lead you to a new eternal reward. Now the what I've just read here, if you look, look at clearly, just, you don't see the word help. So you may say, how did he get the word, the gift of help here? Anyway, however though, regardless of how it may look, it is concerned with the gift of help. We're going to see that. Now this is primarily because of the context. The conditional clauses the apostle used in verses 1 and 2 of this 1 Corinthians chapter 13, they were concerned with spiritual gifts. The first conditional clause, verse 1, second, verse 2, all were concerned with spiritual gifts. So it makes sense that the third one will follow the same pattern as the first two. 
So there has to be an, a spiritual gift implied in this clause, somehow. And that's what we have to uh, find out. So this being the case, the apostle is concerned with the spiritual gift of help, although what he stated in the conditional clause could possibly be carried out by an unbeliever since people in general have the tendency of helping others regardless of their spiritual life. Now, at least in this country, there is one big thing that goes for us in this country. People are eager to help. I mean, that's just, that just what characterizes uh, the people of this United States. They're very eager to help. Now, it should not surprise, us, surprise you, though, that I indicated that an unbeliever could be helpful to others since we know that there are many well-being unbelievers that try to help others. I don't have to tell you that. You know, you know your country, you know the history. You, you listen to these things. People who have donated, I mean, billions and billions of dollars. So they are unbelievers to help people. You know that. Anyway, so the tendency, though, of wanting to help others should be recognized as a part of the image of God in every human being since he created us in his image that includes some form of his character. Now, helping others involves often some kind of compassion which every human being is capable is capable. Every human being is capable. That doesn't mean we are. We do it, but we are capable of doing that. Uh, so, because again, we, although fallen, are still the image of God. Now, God is compassionate towards us because that is part of who He is, and He described Himself to Moses that way, as recorded in. One of the few passages where God actually described himself directly. And that is Exodus chapter 34 verse 6. Now this is one of the uh, one of those intriguing passages where God gave a detail more than any other place where he talked about himself in a detailed way of, of who he is. So this is what he says, part of what he says is, he said, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, look at the next thing, the compassionate and the gracious God, slow to anger, abandoning in love and faithfulness. So here, God reveals who he is. And so compassion is part of who he is. That is why I'm arguing that even though we are fallen humans, because we are the image of God, we are still capable of compassion. People are capable of compassion. Now, that aside, people could also be generous to others because they are religious in a sense that they recognize there is God, the creator, 
without actually being saved. Now, so I'm arguing that people can be generous, first because that part of us, there's a part of us that's still the image of God, although we're in a corrupt state. He created man in his own image. Part of that image, although it involves mostly ruling, but to rule you have some characteristic. Now, part of that image is being compassionate. And I'm saying, it is still in us. That's part of the reason we help people, even though we may not know that. However, that there's another reason related to that, of course, is people are religious. They're not saying they're religious. Now, these facts that I've made that people who are religious, they, they try to help based on re- being religious. It doesn't mean they're saved. They're just religious. They believe there's a God, a true God in some cases, they, or they believe that you know, there's a God that they are accountable to. Based on that, they are generous. Now this fact, I've said, is probably best illustrated by Colonus that eventually got saved after uh, the apostle Peter presented to him and others the gospel message. Now, prior to his salvation, he is described first as God-fearing. As we read in Acts chapter 10 verse 2. This is an unbeliever. And he goes to say, how do you know that? We'll, we'll see. Acts chapter 10 verse 2. So I'm arguing that it's because he's an, a religious unbeliever that he's described this way. See, God sees everything uh, that we do, whether believers or unbelievers. He just that if we're dead spiritually, it has nothing to do with us in terms of relationships. That's it. It doesn't mean he's not knowing everything we do. Those who are spiritually alive, different. Those who are dead, see some different too. So here he reads, he and all his family, that is Colenus, and all his family were devout. And look at what they call, he's described here, God-fearing. Does he mean he's saved? No, he's not saved. He's religious. And truly religious people, they have this idea of God. And so they do certain things in order not to offend God. That is, if they really understood what it they're doing. He says, he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Now you will say, well now that's a believer right here. Look at what he says. He gave generously and he prayed to God regularly. If that's how you understood a Christian to be, you don't have a clue as to who is a Christian. Now any Religious unbeliever can do all this. But that doesn't make the person a believer. So, here's the reason I can argue this. Now, Colonus was described as devout and God-fearing in the sense that he embraced Judaism to some extent without being a full convert. That would have required him to undergo circumcision. Remember what say how important that was to a Jew. So if you, com- if you converted to Judaism at that time, 
and you're a man, you must go through circumcision for them to accept you as part of being a Jew. Uh, being involved in Judaism, so to say. So, but we think he, I mean, from every indication, he embraced it partially because there was no evidence he went through circumcision. Because if he went through circumcision, he'd be full-fledged, accepted member of Judaism, so to say. Nonetheless, though, he was religious in that he worshipped the God of the Jews by devoting himself to certain Jewish activities that are associated with being pious, such as giving to the poor, as this was through of him, according to the testimony of the angel that came to him. Now, yes, this is where I think many, of, many people get it wrong. Is they think if you do good things that you're a believer. No, you, it doesn't make you right. It may mean that you, you're a God-fearing person. But it doesn't mean you have life. Now, to prove this point, look at, we begin here, though. It says, look at verse 4. That Acts chapter 10, look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Colonel stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come to up as a memorial offering before God. You know, God sees that. He knows what you're doing. He recognizes it. But there's just one problem. Colenos was not saved. But he was an elect who was religious. He wasn't saved, but he was an elect. Now I say this because if he were saved, the angel that appeared to him would not have instructed him to send for Peter to hear what he has to say. Which is, of course, is the preaching of the gospel. Well, well, send someone to go and preach the gospel to him. If he was already saved. Hence, we contend that a person who is religious can be quite generous. Especially if such a person thinks that generosity is a way to eternal life, which, of course, is not true. Now, there are a segment of those who call themselves Christians. They believe that. That by doing these good things, and they have this, and in this group, they are very uh, dominant. Most of you don't realize they are very dominant in the Congress. So they, they push for good things. Let's do good works. Because in their mind, they believe that's the way you earn points to go to heaven. Unfortunately, they're wrong. That's what is being proven here with colonials. Many think that, yeah, if we do great things, we will be going to heaven. Anyway, but the, as we know, that's not really true. Now, even when a, an unbeliever is especially, uh, especially generous and compassionate towards another person, it is God, really, that ultimately works in such an individual to act that way. In other words, when an unbeliever is very generous to do something, God is working. It doesn't mean that person is saved. It just means God is working at his purpose. Now we say this because God can move an unbeliever 
to accomplish his will as he moved King Cyrus to make a declaration that enabled Israelites, the captives, to, re- to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. According to Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 reads In the first year of Cyrus king of Persia in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. He, he was not a believer at least at this point. If he ever became a believer, that's doubtful. But at this point, there's no indication he was. Now, moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. Now, that shouldn't be surprising to you because the scripture also tells us that they thinking. The mind of leaders are in his hands. So whatever they do are coming from him. It can be for blessing or judgment. But he is behind them. Now so the point I'm making though is that an unbeliever is capable of helping others to an extent. And that the spirit to do so is because the fallen humans are still the image of God, although in corrupt state. With, you know, the unbeliever is still an image of God, although in corrupt state. So that's why you can find unbeliever being generous and so on and so forth. Now be that as it may, the clause of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 verse 3, If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames that we are considering, as we have stated, though, is concerned with the gift of help. That's what I'm saying. Even though it doesn't say gift of help, but everything in it screams, screams, gift of help. That's all I'm trying to get to. Anyway, we've already argued a reason for our assertion, no doubt, because the first condition, second condition, all those are associated with gifts. Spiritual gifts. So it makes sense that the last one will also be uh, associated with uh, spiritual gifts as well. Anyway, but before we uh, present further uh, support for our session, though, we should recognize that the apostle again used the word if that is translated from a Greek word that may be used as a marker of condition of a reduced likelihood of occurrence of an activity referenced in this case with the meaning if now here the apostle used it to describe something that is possible but unlikely with respect to him it's, it's possible but unlikely with respect to him I mean that although the apostle could probably do what he wrote in the verse we are considering but that's it's highly unlikely since the apostle did not have much 
of material things after he became an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now he wasn't rich. Forget about what you hear today uh, where uh, Christianity has been turned into merchandising. The apostles weren't rich in that respect. So he couldn't have had a lot of things to give, so to say. Now, by the way, though the Greek word translated if appears twice in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, although probably because of the need to be precise, the translators of the NIV use it once in our verse. Now, the reason then for a certain that the apostle is concerned with the gift of help is because of the clause, if I give all I possess to the poor, that's where I get the gift of help. Look at it, it says, if I give all I, I possess to the poor. And I'm saying that clause is talking about the gift of help. And let's continue to uh, uh, prove that to be true. Now truly, the word poor of the NIV, although helpful to the English reader, does not appear explicitly in the Greek, since literally the Greek reads something like this. If I give away all the, you can say things belonging to me, but it really says, if I give away all the belonging to me. That's what the uh, Greek reads. It doesn't say to the poor, just all belonging to me. Now you see the expression give to the poor of the NIV is really how the translators of the NIV rendered the Greek word used in our verse that appears twice in the Greek New Testament. In its other occurrence, the word means to feed, to feed, as it is used in the quotation from the Old Testament scripture as we read in Romans chapter 12 verse 20. Romans. Romans chapter 12 verse 20. Now the Greek word uh, translated uh, please give to the poor. That's what the Greek word really means to feed, and that's the way it's translated here. You see, on the contrary, this is dealing with how you deal with those who are antagonistic towards you. So, on, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, in our passage of First Corinthians chapter 13, Verse 2, the word really means to do out, to do out something, or to give away. Or probably something done bit by bit. So, even though it's a grief to the poor, it really means to do out or to give away bit by bit. Now, the thing to be given away probably bit by bit. Is then described in the sentence, all I possess. All I possess in the Greek. That literally reads, all the things belonging to me. All the things belonging to me. 
Now, this is because the word possess of the NIV is translated from a Greek verb that may mean to be present or to be at one's disposal. So it means to possess or to belong. As it is used in the description of uh, the property possessed by Publius in the island of Malta who uh, where Apostle Paul and uh, his team landed due to the shipwreck and was entertained according to Acts chapter 28 verse 7. Acts chapter 28 verse 7 reads there was an estate nearby that belonged that word belonged is really the Greek word we're looking at that means that an ivy transfer possessed that belonged to uh, Publius the chief official of the island he welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. Now the word may mean to be in a state or to be in a circumstance as it is used to describe the state of a believer in need that should be helped according to James chapter 2 verse 15. James Chapter 2, verse 15. James chapter 2, verse 15 reads, Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. So without, to be in a state of without. That's how a Greek word is rendered here. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, because the word appears as a Greek participle, it has a sense of possession, possession, used collectively for all of a person's possessions. Now the, the possibility of giving away all that a person possesses suggests that the apostle was not was probably not thinking of honorary giving, but sacrificial giving that only a few believers could do. He wasn't thinking of just giving, but sacrificial giving. Remember what he says: "All I possess." He's using an issue of sacrificial giving. So then, the idea of Sacrificial giving implies that the apostle was probably thinking then of a person with a gift of help. See how I got to it? Because of this issue of sacrificial giving. Now we said it because we argued, this is one of those reasons that is, to me it's almost difficult to be uh, quite correct with interpretation of the Bible if you don't look at the full context. Now, 
we argued in our study of verse 28 of First Corinthians chapter 12, if you remember it's been a while, that those who are able to help others are those in a, safe, in a, in a, in a, a unique way, are those with give to help. That's what we argued in verse 28 of, of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So they are those who, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit related to helping uh, others, are more devoted to helping the needy in the church more consistently than others because of their gifts of help that they have. Now, a person in this class then will be prone to give sacrificially. In other words, it, it doesn't matter. You know, people say the person can take off his shirt off of his back and give you. Or in, the, in this situation where a believer is, has a gift of giving or gift of help, particularly, well, it doesn't matter what he has. It's not the issue. That person will go beyond, I mean, take two believers with the same thing. The one with the gift of help will exceed the other believer. Even though if they have the same, if you can measure their uh, wealth or whatever, or lack of it the same way, you can see that the person with the gift of help will always outshine, go the extra mile to help. That's what it is. Now, so that's why we say that a person dead in this class will be prone to give sacrificially. It is for this reason that we contend then that the apostle was not thinking of someone who could give uh, sacrificially as such, but someone with the gift of help. It's not just that he gives sacrificially, but that he has the gift of help. Now this interpretation, as we have stated previously, is supported by the context where the apostle had mentioned the gift of speaking of tongues, gift of prophecy, and gift of help. I mean, gift of faith. So, therefore, I mean, so then, it makes sense that the clause, if I give all, that clause, if I give all, is concerned with gift of help. So the point we're making is really this. That the first conditional clause of First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, again it says, If I give all I possess to the poor, that that clause implies the apostle is probably concerned with an individual with gift of help. Since it is such a person that could give sacrificially in the sense of giving away all the person possesses. Now you, you know, again, you have to understand that we're concerned with the gift of help with believers. Because unbelievers are capable of so many things as we've said in terms of being generous. Of course, again, we should bear in mind that the apostle is stating something that's unlikely to occur with him, but it could happen with others who do not understand what he understood about the spiritual life, in the sense that the apostle will not give without being controlled 
by the Holy Spirit. See, you will walk around among people. And there are a whole lot of people. They look at us. We're no different than they, uh, than they are. But there is this underlying factor. That, you know, they can't look at your face and see it. But there's this underlying factor that you are regenerated. And that the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And so the Holy Spirit will move you to do things they can't quite make sense of. That's the issue. That once you are a child of God, yes, you're going to do things that uh, won't make sense to people. Because they don't understand what you understand. You, you do certain things, you know, you want to be sure that you're controlled by the Holy Spirit. The unbeliever doesn't even know there's a Holy Spirit. So what he doesn't do, or he or she doesn't think about that, he just does whatever comes. But not so with the believer. So that's why we say, for the apostle, he's spiritually matured, he wouldn't want to do anything without being controlled by the Holy Spirit. So that's why he can make this condition of something that is possible, but unlikely with him. Now this brings us then to the second day conditional clause the apostle actually stated. The second conditional clause the apostle stated that is problematic as we will note later is given in the form of the verbal phrase of the 1984 edition of the NIV of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 3. Because this is where it reads, and surrender my body to the flames. Surrender my body to the flames. Now, now of course, uh, literally, using the same Greek manuscript, the same manuscript, Greek manuscript, that is the basis of the translation of the 1984 edition of the NIV, the Greek actually reads this way. If I hand over my body in order that I may burn. Let me read that again. That's the same manuscript. Because I'm, I'm using that word manuscript because, I'm going to, because of what I'm about to say. Now, it is here, again it will say, and if I had, if I hand over my body in order that I may burn. Now, this is because the word surrender of the NIV is translated from a Greek word that may mean to betray, to betray. As it is used in Jesus' statement regarding the arrangements to hand him over to the Jewish religious authorities as recorded in Matthew chapter 20 verse 18. Matthew Matthew chapter 20 verse 18. It is, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. 
here the Greek word that translated surrender in the uh, an view of the passage we are studying here is translated uh, uh, with the meaning of betray. Now the the word may mean to hand down as in the charge against Stephen as we read in Acts chapter 6 verse 14. Acts 6 verse 14. And if you open Acts, just hold it for the next passage. It's also in Acts. Acts chapter 6 verse 14. It is, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom Moses handed down to us. Expression handed down is the same Greek word translated surrender. Now, the word may mean to commit, as it is used to describe the action of the church in Antioch when they sent Barnabas and Paul into the first missionary trip, according to Acts chapter 14, verse 26. It is from Atalia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed, that's a Greek word here, committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. Now the word may mean to entrust, as the apostle used it to describe obedience of the Roman believers, Regarding the teaching they received, as stated in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. He reads, But thanks be to God, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. That word entrusted, same Greek word. Now the word may mean to pass on to another what one knows of other oral or written tradition with various nuances. So the word may mean to pass down as Apostle Paul Use it to describe the gospel message he preached or he passed on, on to the Corinthians according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 3. First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 3. It is for what I received, I passed on, that's a Greek word, to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Now the meaning to pass down is also used to describe the commands of the Lord as Apostle Peter used it to warn against backsliding spiritually, as conveyed in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 21. 
And looking at time, it's time for break, and after break we'll read that.